0: Warning, this show may contain adult language that is not suitable for all audiences.
1: This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter and Bazooka Joe Valtellini. Ben Askren retires.
0: Jan Blachowicz wins a split decision over Jacare. UFC's 2020 schedule begins to take shape. And two weeks without a UFC event, whatever shall we do? We are joined today by Hurricane Shane Burgos to discuss his recent win over Maquan, Amir Khani, and many other MMA topics, and by TSN's own Robin Black to discuss whether it is fair to label a fight as boring. Whether it's fair to label a fight as boring. What, whatever could we be speaking about when I say that? Well, if you watched uh, this past weekend's card UFC fight night in Sao Paulo, you saw a uh, pretty slogging five rounds of fighting between Jan Bojovic and Jacques Ray. Jacare's first fight in the UFC at 205 pounds ends up being a bit of a dud. Now, the reason I want to have Robin on is because when I was in Las Vegas, I think it was in February of 2017, whenever the the rematch between Stephen Thompson and Tyron Woodley is considered one of the, I guess for lack of a better term, most boring fights, uh, or at least title fights maybe in UFC history, I'm just going to look up the date of that, make sure I get it right. Yeah, March, sorry, March of 2017. I watched that fight with him and uh, John Ramdeen, formerly of the Fight Network. And uh, John was gushing about how great of a technical fight it was and he was saying it was, it was very entertaining. Now, uh, I was on the other side of that and said, well, I, I understood what was happening, but it doesn't necessarily mean it was particularly compelling. The same thing goes for Jacare versus Bojovic. I I understood what was happening, and I respect what was happening, but I don't necessarily find it to be all that compelling. Now, does somebody like Robin, who has competed, who really is uh, used to dissecting all of the different elements of uh, mixed martial arts and uh, breaking it down, so to speak, if you obviously Robin labels his breakdowns as the Robin Black breakdown. So... For someone who breaks down hundreds and hundreds of fights a year, is it fair to call a fight boring or is it just technical or how do you label it? If you're wanting to respect these athletes, what what can you say? Is there a, a way of saying boring in a more polite way? Is there something that we should be thinking about more when we are labeling these fights and uh, and I guess deciding what our thoughts on them are? I think that these are all uh, very, very interesting conversations that we uh, simply must have as uh, people who cover the sport, consume the sport, etc. But the big news this week, Ben Askren, the funky one himself, has uh, decided to hang up the gloves and uh, revealed to Ariel Hawani on the Ariel Hawani show this past Monday that he is... Going to retire from mixed martial arts, he went one and two in the UFC in his one year spent in the promotion—a very, very memorable year. And that's really what I want to talk about when it comes to Ben Askren. He was 18 and 0 with one no contest entering the UFC. His three opponents: Robbie Lawler, the former UFC welterweight champion of the world; Jorge Masvidal, who's probably the number one contender right now for the UFC welterweight title. And Demian Maya, one of the best grapplers in MMA history. I was going to say UFC history, but I think you can go as far as saying MMA history, especially with him beating Ben Askren, who I think coming into the sport, a lot of people would have argued might have been the best grappler in, uh, in MMA history, or at least among them. And you can probably still argue that. In fact, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, however, the results for Ben Askren are as such that a lot of people might look at them and think that, A, the UFC lost the trade that, I guess, in principle sent Demetrius Johnson to one championship and sent Ben Askren to the UFC. However, I think that calling that trade anything other than a win-win is laughable, and I'll explain why. And I think I might have already kind of explained my my opinion on this on a previous show, but either way, I'll I'll, I'll cut it down a little bit and summarize why I think that calling that trade bad for the UFC is a huge oversight. Now, they lost their former flyweight champion, the only flyweight champion they had before Henry Cejudo scored a win over Demetrius Johnson, and one of the pound-for-pound best fighters in the sport right now. Might be the best pound-for-pound fighter in the sport right now. If uh, you listen to a lot of people that are experts on the subject, I believe Israel Adesanya recently called Demetrius the pound-for-pound best fighter in the sport, if I recall correctly. However, bringing Ben Askren into the sport did a lot for the promotional machine. Look at the Robbie Lawler fight. You know, Ben comes into the UFC, and I'm going to pull up some numbers here. You'll have to excuse my typing, but... If you look at the UFC 235 Embedded Series, and you look at the numbers, especially the ones that had a picture of Ben Askren on them, they did big, big numbers. We're talking about... Am I I looking at the right one? What was his first event? Yeah, UFC 235. Yeah, over eight hundred thousand viewers for some of these. The first episode did a, a million viewers, and I think a lot of that. While I obviously John Jones is part of that uh, particular episode, I think you can attribute a lot of that to Ben Askren. In fact, if you look at a lot of Ben Askren's numbers, I'm looking right now. UFC 235 media lunch himself and Tyron Woodley, 462 thousand users uh, viewers. You know these are these are the kind of things that. You look at and you realize that he was—he brought a lot of promotional value to the promotion, to the UFC. And the fight with Robbie Lawler was great in the sense that it created a lot of mystery. Like if you look at Ben Askren and how he won that fight, he was dropped on his head by Robbie Lawler. Robbie Lawler was pounding on him. Robbie Lawler almost finishes that fight. I remember I was interviewing somebody during the fight, and I was like, it looks like Ben Askren's about to lose his UFC debut. It was that close to being a loss. And then suddenly, you get that squeeze. Basically a bulldog choke on Robbie Lawler. Robbie never taps. Herb Dean stops the fight. He thinks that Robbie's gone out. Robbie immediately springs up. So there was a lot of ambiguity to how that fight would have gone had it continued. Now, personally, I think that When you have somebody with the squeeze of a Ben Askren and he's got Robbie Lawler in a bulldog choke that doesn't look like Robbie Lawler is on the verge of escaping, we kind of know how it's going to end. We don't know for sure, but, I mean, watch those videos of Askren squeezing a watermelon and imagine how that must have felt for Robbie Lawler, who is is certainly not a quitter by any uh, means. And you don't want to call somebody a quitter when they tap to a submission anyways, but a bulldog choke is not a very common choke that wins fights in the lower weight classes of uh, men's divisions. It's just not. There are very few of them that have taken place, I think, in probably lightweight, welterweight, featherweight, bantamweight over the last three to to basically the last ten years, I would say. Very few fights have ended with that kind of a a choke. So it is within the realm of possibility that Lawler would have gotten out of that somehow. He would have fought his way out. But again, I think also because of the type of submission... That won that particular fight, you have to call into question whether or not that's why people kind of think of it as ambiguous. You know, if it was a rear naked choke, if it was a guillotine choke, you know, those are more common ways to finish fights in in the welterweight division. But a a bulldog choke is pretty uncommon. So whatever, he gets the win, wins his UFC debut over a former UFC champion in Robbie Lawler. And that gives him a ton of promotional clout because the big question for Ben Askren was whether or not he could beat a UFC-caliber opponent. That's what everybody wanted to know. Can he beat somebody in the UFC? He beats Robbie Lawler without even landing a significant strike. Impressive. On paper, very impressive win. a former champion. And Ben Askren wins in the first round. A lot of people didn't think that he'd be able to get finishes in the UFC. A lot of people have called him boring in the past. So then you move on to the next fight, and it's Jorge Masvidal. And Masvidal is, uh, you know, had just taken a year off the sport. He came back. He knocks out Darren Till. He's got lots of promotional momentum himself. Not a ton, but you know, uh, the second person to finish Darren Till, the first person to knock out Darren Till. Obviously, that's that that gets you a lot of attention, especially given that Darren Till had fought for the title just months prior. So now you've got two of the fighters with the most promotional clout in the division going toe to toe. Maybe the most promotional clout, outside of uh, uh Kamaru Usman who just beat Woodley for the title, one of the best welterweight champions of all time in Tyron Woodley, Usman basically clean cheats him over the course of five rounds. So you look at uh, you look at how he won that fight. And now you know Usman's like, wow, this guy's dominant. He hasn't lost in the UFC. And you've got Masvidal against Askren with potentially a title shot on the line. You know. Askren, Masvidal apparently is told that if he wins, he's getting a title shot. And we've also got Askren being told that if he beats Masvidal, he's getting a title shot. Askren's expecting to get the win and fight Usman at Madison Square Garden. He's already talking about it. He's about a 2-1 to favorite in this fight. Well, the fight, we know how that one went. It wasn't much of a fight. It was five seconds. It was the fastest knockout in UFC history. The first loss of Ben Askren's professional career. Jorge Masvidal. Basically gets all the clout. He gets all the promotional clout by beating, uh, since undefeated, Ben Askren. Now, the, I think the, wor- the worst thing about Askren's UFC tenure is how much he was mismanaged in terms of the selection of opponents. Because Ben Askren's best attribute coming into the UFC, outside of his wrestling, is his trash-talking. You know, nobody talks like this guy. You get this guy in front of a mic and you're guaranteed entertainment. And I think that that's what a lot of people are going to miss about Ben Askren is his ability to get on the mic and make people look stupid. Now, Masvidal didn't really feed into that, so that was tough. Robbie Lawler has nothing to say, so talking to Robbie Lawler, you know, trying to talk smack about Robbie Lawler, somebody who Askren had basically outright said, I, I respect a lot, he couldn't do that. And then you get him against Demian Maya, who's like the most respectful guy in the sport. Outside of maybe a Steven Thompson. I mean, you probably put him up there with Stephen Thompson. Demon doesn't disrespect anybody. So you got three guys that Askren can't utilize his second greatest weapon against. He can't weaponize his trash talk. And that basically just takes the promotional cloud away from Askren. And that, that surprised me a lot about him coming to the UFC. I thought Lawler for him was a terrible introductory fight into the UFC because you can't allow you don't allow him to utilize his trash talk. Remember, at the beginning of the year, people were talking about what happens if you and Tyron Woodley—you know, you guys are the you're the number one contender, and Tyron Woodley has the title. Well, look at where we're at now. It's amazing what a year can do in this sport. Incredible. The trade was about a year ago, just over a year ago. And look at all the stuff that happened with Ben Askren. But think about how uninteresting the welterweight division was before that. Woodley was the champion. He's running through everybody. He beats Darren Till, who, you know, a lot of people thought Covington should have gotten a shot. Covington couldn't fight that month, but they needed a main event. So, uh, you know, Till, who is an interesting prospect, gets that title shot. But think about all of the the Woodley title fights. Like, a lot of them weren't very interesting. You have the Demian Maya fight, you have the um, fight with Wonderboy, that rematch that, uh, you know, really kind of laid an egg. The welterweight division's got absolutely no steam. And right now, I think it's the most exciting division in terms of promotional value in the sport. Even with Askren retiring, you've got Masvidal waiting on an opponent. Um, he's going to make big money. You had Nate Diaz fighting at welterweight this year, uh, coming, uh, coming back after a long, long hiatus from the sport. You've got uh, Covington versus Usman, two, two guys that have been almost untouchable in the UFC, uh, shy, uh, short of that one Worley Alves finish against Covington. I mean, nobody's put Covington into any real trouble these guys are going to go toe-to-toe you've got Leon Edwards who's making a name for himself in the sport looking fantastic against Rafael dos Anjos recently there's a lot going on there's a lot to digest you've got the title on the line in just a few weeks time Covington and Usman that's an interesting fight and it's Usman's first title defense you've still got Tyron Woodley in the mix So this is a division, and even with Maya getting his win, you had Stephen Thompson coming off a win. A lot of these elder statesmen are are making a name for themselves as well. You had Pettis beating Thompson by a a pretty vicious knockout in his own right this year. There's a lot of moving parts right now in the welterweight division that makes it a very exciting division. And I think a lot of that you can put on Askren. You can put Askren as a guy who brought a lot of attention to this division. And this is a division that, again, was fairly stagnant. You had GSP-dominant. Dominant GSP, then GSP leaves. you got Hendricks and uh, Lawler going kind of back and forth for the title. And then you've got uh, Woodley coming in, winning the title, and he's defending the title with relative ease. Now we've got some real excitement. The profile of Usman was built up by Askren. The profile of Colby Covington was built up by Askren a little bit. Askren leaving the division, I think, is going to hurt the division in terms of promotional clout. But right now, where he leaves the division, you've got a ton of promotional value. Now, I heard a lot of people talk about, you know, Askren's legacy is going to be how he handled that loss against Masvidal. And, he, I mean, sure, he handled that loss incredibly well. Don't get me wrong. But I think what Askren's main uh, legacy is going to be in the UFC is his trash talk and him just being able to generate a ton of promotional clout. It's coming in and basically turning the UFC on its head. In a uh, Ariel Hawani column this week, he compared it to, the NWO takeover in WCW, and you, WCW was an afterthought up until the NWO came in. And I think the welterweight division was too. I think that's a very fair comparison that Ariel drew on, and I think that you have to look at that and think, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That Maybe that is uh, a, a fair comparison on how much Askren turned that division on his head. So I think that what Askren brought to the table was reviving a division that needed to be revived. And it came at the expense of the flyweight division, which I think in its own right also needed to be revived. And with Cejudo winning that title, maybe it will be. It looks like the UFC are still kind of lukewarm on whether they're going to keep it around. But right now, it looks like it's all systems go. Now, whether Cejudo decides to give the title up and just defend the Bantamweight title, you know that's up for debate. We'll see what happens. That's up to Cejudo. Really, it's not really much of a debate. It's up to to Henry to decide what he wants to do next. Uh, he can vacate that title, and then there's there's some flyweights that are, uh, you know, look at Davis and Figueredo. Look at, uh, obviously, Joseph Benavidez is the first name that should pop to mind. But uh, there's a, there are a lot of interesting matchups in that division, even though there aren't that many fighters in the division right now. Maybe he can breathe a second wind into the flyweight division, but that welterweight division has so many good fighters that, right now, where it's at, I mean, it, it, nobody could have imagined that it would be this popular now, that there, there would be this much promotional clout into that division. And I think the Ben Askren is owed a lot of thank yous from the UFC. Just having Askren come to the UFC, I think, was very surprising. You know, given his beef with Dana White, you have to think about it from that standpoint as well. A lot of people thought, this guy's never going to get a chance. Dana White basically had said previously, you know, I don't think that this guy's ever going to be in the UFC. He decided to pass on him when he was a free agent. He ends up in one championship was arguably their biggest name for years in terms of North American fans. So I think that Ben Askren you know, is always going to have a big question mark, which is, in his prime, could he have been a UFC champion? Could he have hung with a lot of the best of the best in the UFC? What did we miss from having him in Bellator? Could him and George St. Pierre have been uh, a very, very competitive fight? And I think it could have been. But to say that Ben Askren, you know, once he fought the best competition, it's proof that, you know, he wasn't as good as everybody thought he was. At age 35, coming to the UFC, fighting the best of the best guys, it's hard to know. It really still, I think, is hard to know how good Askren could have been if he was in the UFC. I do think that the fighters in the UFC are a lot more well-rounded than those that, that he fought outside of the UFC. And I, I'll even include Douglas Lima of circa 2012 in that argument. I, I don't think the Douglas Lima in 2012 is nowhere near as good as the 2019 version of Douglas Lima we're seeing, seeing now. I think that if you put Lima against Askrin today, even if you you know don't take the hip replacement into, into account, like let's say the Askrin that fought Robbie Lawler at the beginning of this year, I think you probably favor Lima. And there's no disrespect to Ben, but I just think that the sport has evolved so much since that 2012 fight. Like, we're talking seven years of evolution in this fight, and I just don't think that Ben Askren evolved all that much. I think that his grappling was still head and shoulders above 98% of the people in the UFC or any any promotions of welterweight division. Maybe 99%. Maybe 100%. The Demian Maia argument might lead you to believe that it's sub-100%, but if you're rounding up, it's probably closer to 100%. But... uh, I think there's still unanswered questions about what we could have seen with Ben Askren that we will never solve due to the lack of time machine technology, at least that we know of. Maybe there are time time machines that we, maybe there are people from the future among us right now. We we just can't be certain. If you see anybody really strike gold in the stock market uh, from some under the radar stocks, maybe we raise our eyebrows about time machines, uh, people from the, from the future. But uh, I digress. I think I would have liked to see Ben Askren in his prime. I think that Ben Askren, this was. It was 2014 that the UFC could have brought him in. Had they brought him in in 2014, who knows what we could have seen from Ben Askren in the UFC. But we'll never know the answer to those questions. I think that we need to be thankful that Ben Askren did fight in the UFC. And I think that Jorge Masvidal certainly needs to be thankful of that result that he had against Ben Askren. Because that's a highlight that is going to be one of the all-time highlights in the UFC. I think that if you see the Bubba O'Reilly montages at a live event, you're going to have to expect to see that there for the foreseeable future. the, the You know, far into the future. Because there are very few uh, knockouts like that one that you're ever going to see again in the UFC. Fastest knockout of all time. Spectacular knockout. That was set up perfectly by Muhari Masvidal and made him into a huge star. And like I keep saying, I think that Diaz might have been the, the least accomplished, you know, the, the not least accomplished, but the lowest end fighter that he fought this year, if you look at Till. And you look at uh, Ben Askren. Like I think we know how a fight with between Ben Askren and uh, Nick Diaz probably or Nate Diaz probably goes. It was interesting to hear Caesar Gracie speaking of the Diazes on uh Ariel Helwani show earlier this week. Talk about uh, Nick and how he had spoken to Nick. I guess shortly after Nick's interview with uh, Ariel Helwani, he was like co- coherent, more focused. That's interesting, but again, the the Nick Diaz that I saw in that interview, I don't think should be fighting again. Well, we discussed the retirement of Ben Askren, but let's talk about a retirement that apparently is coming to an end for the umpteenth time. Floyd Mayweather. Dana White posts. Well, first we saw Dana White with Floyd Mayweather at the Clippers versus Celtics game. You know, Floyd's wearing his snakeskin jacket or whatever it is, and they, they look like they're having fun. And then I think it's like 24 hours later, Dana's on Instagram saying Floyd Mayweather's coming back in 2020. Now, for those people that have illusions of him competing in the UFC in anything other than, like, a fight that doesn't allow kicks and takedowns, a.k.a. a boxing match with whatever uh, smaller gloves, I think you're under a a very strong illusion that Floyd Mayweather is going to have any sort of chance. Like, I think if you took the, the worst fighter, like a fighter that didn't win a single fight in the PFL lightweight tournament and put them in an MMA fight against Floyd Mayweather, they would win. And that's not a knock on Floyd Mayweather. We're just talking about two different sports here. And Floyd Mayweather's 43. How many 43-year-olds can you think about in the 145 or 155-pound weight division? Like, I'll wait. Not a whole lot, if any. So the idea of him coming back to fight in anything other than boxing doesn't make a ton of sense. Now, you can connect the dots here. What's Dana White been talking about all year? Zufa boxing. October, there was supposed to be an announcement. It never happened. We asked Dana White about it at the last event, and he said that there were, you know, a couple bumps in the road. But now suddenly, it looks like Mayweather might be factoring into those plans. Now, whether it's a co-promotion with Mayweather Promotions or uh, Mayweather's going to be fighting for in, like, whatever the first Zufa Boxing event, something along those lines, to kind of, you know, put Zufa Boxing on the map immediately, which would I think would be a good idea. I'm not sure exactly which scenario is going to play out. However, I do think that the idea that Floyd Mayweather gets into an octagon and fights in MMA is not like there's basically a zero percent chance of that happening. And if I'm wrong, I'll eat my words. I just don't think I'm going to be wrong. I remember Floyd, what was it, like maybe a year ago said that he could sign a deal tomorrow with the UFC, a four fight deal for a billion dollars. Maybe, but I don't think he's getting to fight four. (laughs) I don't think he's getting to fight two. Name a guy on the roster at lightweight that you think Floyd Mayweather can beat in a, an MMA fight. UFC rules, takedowns, kicks, all that. Uh, again, I just don't see it happening. Like, who, who's he going to beat? He has a puncher's chance, just like, you know, anyone else does. I think if you took a heavyweight boxer, like a Tyson Fury or, or Anthony Joshua, and put them up against a heavyweight that wasn't very grappling heavy, like, that would be, there'd be a, definitely more of a chance of them winning. But in the lighter weight classes, forget about it. Like, the learning curve is just too steep. The fighters are too well-rounded. And, I mean, again, at age 43, I don't think that we're going to teach an old dog new tricks. You can't just learn MMA. Like, you can't just go at age 43 and become, like, a UFC-caliber mixed martial artist if you have no, like, MMA experience, period. He can go and stuff takedowns in practice. That's great. If you know it's a t- uh, takedown is coming and you can stuff a takedown... I mean, that's good on you. That's great. But you're not going to know the takedown's coming in a fight. You're just not. So for Mayweather to be under any sort of illusion that he can compete in MMA, you're not giving the man enough credit. Mayweather is a a very, very smart businessman. His goal is to monetize his brand, whether that's him in, in the boxing ring or something he's investing in, to the highest degree possible. And Mayweather versus McGregor did that. Mayweather versus McGregor was a massive spectacle, uh, one of the most watched pay per views of all time, and it did you know massive numbers across the board. It would draw drew global intrigue, but I just don't see it needing to happen again. I don't see. I don't think we need to see mixed martial artists fight against boxers. Like I think if you took the top ten UFC lightweights and you made a ten round fight where every round a new lightweight would get to go up up against. Floyd Mayweather, like, Mayweather would win. <laughs> like, he, like even though Mayweather is getting more and more tired and getting fresh opponents every round, if it's a boxing match, Mayweather's winning that 100 times out of 100. No, I don't know what the rules would be. Like, if you knock out whatever the 8th-ranked guy, is the fight over? I, I don't know. Maybe they have to make some sort of, like, selection as to who's going to box in which rounds. But uh, we're playing fantasy land here by doing that. But I just think that anybody who... Like, the odds came out, for example, of what Mayweather's going to do next. And, of course, these odds are a lot of the time just so you can put your money in escrow with a sports book because it, they, they usually don't end up happening. But uh, his next fight, the odds-on favorite uh, in MMA was George St-Pierre. George St-Pierre versus Floyd Mayweather. George St-Pierre is not going to box Floyd Mayweather. I know he likes money, too. He's, he's pretty similar to Floyd in that regard. He's, he tries to monetize himself as much as possible. Maybe if they offered him, like, $100 million to box Floyd, he'd be interested. But, like, I don't know where they're getting these names from. Pacquiao makes the most sense. The Pacquiao at 2-1 to one makes the most sense. But are you going to get Pacquiao to sign with Zufa Boxing? I don't know. I'm not a big follower of boxing. So I don't know who's locked into what promotion for what amount of time and who's locked into what management and all that. I just don't have – there's too much going on in that world for me to follow. For me, to, like it's like Mayweather learning MMA. I I can't just jump in and learn about all these boxers and all these weight classes and all these promotions right now. I I like and if you quiz me on it in a year, and say like who is the lineal champion at the super welterweight division uh, in Germany, I don't know. How like how can can I learn all? I, I mean, I guess I could crunch uh, sit sit at a table with a book for hours or look online and just memorize and memorize and memorize. But and then I have to memorize who their manager is and who which promotion they're aligned with. It's too much. Too much information. At least with the UFC, if you're following just that one promotion, you're still getting the you know the best-on-best best competition, and you can probably figure it out in less time than a year. I mean, I still challenge you to figure out... Like, there are people on the roster that I've never heard of that have fought already in the UFC that where I've watched their fight because I watch every UFC fight. But, like, I, I went back and looked uh, when the UFC was in Moscow recently... I went and looked back at some guy's names. I'm like, I recognize that name, but from where? Is this their debut? And then I go back and look, and like, oh, they fought that person like last like last year. There was a guy that I saw in the USADA testing pool. I'm like, I don't know who this guy is. And I looked him up, and he's some Brazilian guy that signed two years ago. Like, I can't keep up with everything in this sport. I can try. But there's a lot to digest all the time. There's no more news stories coming out all the time. Now, the UFC seems to have been uh, getting their schedule Sorted out over the next little bit. They've got uh, some events that are starting to trickle out in terms of Q1. So we've got January 18th, UFC 246 in Las Vegas is unannounced. Uh, Conor probably still needs to dot some I's and cross some T's if that's going to happen. It could end up being a fight night. Who knows? But there are fights that are starting to trickle out that have been booked for that date, for January 18th. January 25th, UFC Fight Night in Raleigh, North Carolina added a great fight with Michael Chiesa versus Rafael Dos Anjos, joining Corey Zanhagen versus Frankie Edgar and Curtis Blades versus Junior Dos Santos on that card. That is an unbelievable card for a fight night. I love it. January 25th, Raleigh, North Carolina. February 8th, UFC 247 in Houston, Texas appears to be what is going to happen on that date. Some fights, again, have been rumored for that particular event. Such as John Jones versus Dominic Reyes. Valentina Shevchenko versus Caitlin Chukagian. And earlier today, uh, Ariel Hawani posited that we might see a Yoel Romero-Israel Adesanya fight the same week as the Jones fight. So uh, three title fights again, maybe in February. That would be cool. It would be weird. You'd have one pay-per-view UFC 244 with no title fight. Then you'd have a card with three title fights in UFC 245. And then UFC 246 might not have a title fight. It might be Conor versus uh, Cowboy headlining. And then UFC 247 might have three title fights. Who knows? It'd be interesting to see. Because a lot of these uh, champions are starting to get healthy again. They're starting to... Uh, a lot of them haven't had fights in some time. As a result of 244 not having a title fight. Uh, February 23rd, UFC Fight Night in Auckland, New Zealand has been booked. According to the local newspaper there. March 14th, UFC Fight Night in Brasilia has been reported by Kombach. March 21st, UFC Fight Night in London was announced earlier today. And then uh, some rumored events. March 7th is the likely date for UFC 248 in Las Vegas. April 4th, the likely date if it's going to be in Brooklyn for UFC 249. Somebody pointed out to me that Elton John is playing at Barclays on the weekend of the 11th. Uh, I had suggested that that might be the date. Uh, Khabib has mentioned that he's going to face Ferguson in April in Brooklyn, so you uh, can, you know, put two and two together there. Nothing confirmed again. These are just rumors. May 9th, an event in Sao Paulo per... Combat that's what they have reported july 4th most likely ufc 252 for international fight week on independence day that's pretty cool july 17th or 18th or 19th the date is not yet uh in stone but rumored to have an event in glasgow scotland according to net. so uh it's interesting to see some of these events starting to uh Come out now. I'm interested to see what's going to happen in terms of the remainder of Q1 because there are a lot of weekends there that need to be filled. They do 44 events a year, so I'd imagine that you're not going to have one, two, three, four, five, six weekends where you're not going to have an event in Q1. It's just not that's just not the way the schedule works. So, a lot of other locations likely TBD in the near future because uh, last year they had announced Q1 in November. Uh, around the time of the last New York card, which was Lewis versus uh, Cormier, Cormier versus Lewis, if you want to put them in the right order. But uh, we haven't seen any official like Q1 announcements yet, but I, I expect that we'll see that in the coming weeks. But right now, two weeks with no UFC event. And I think next week I'm going to do something fun. I'm going to do the top moments of the decade in the UFC. The last 10 years, what were the top moments? And I'm going to talk about each of them. That'll be fun. I'm also going to have Robbie Fox of Barstool Sports on the show next week. That'll be uh, that'll be cool too. Apparently, some fighters have mistaken him for me, and he's closer in age to my son than he is to uh, to, to me. So that's that's great. That's like that's a huge badge of honor for me. It makes me feel young, young and spry. So uh, he'll be joining me next week. He's got a very interesting story of how he got into media. Obviously, Barstool Sports, non-traditional media. So. I'm interested to pick his brain on that. I'm not sure who else I have on the show next week. can't remember if I booked someone else. If I have, I apologize for not calling you because I don't have you in my schedule, but uh, hopefully we'll sort that out. One person I did speak with is Shane Burgos, Hurricane Shane, one of the greatest featherweights in the world right now in mixed martial arts. If you consider how many featherweights there are in the world competing in mma i mean any featherweight in the ufc is probably one of the best in the world but he's ranked baby but uh right now is uh without a ufc contract from what i last heard and we'll talk to him about that as he joins us now on the tsn mma show
1: ladies and gentlemen it's time to introduce this week's guest
0: i'm joined now by one of the top featherweights on planet earth today shane burgos so shane you just went to disney world with your family how many funnel cakes did you crush
1: I didn't eat any funnel cake, but I ate a lot of ice cream. So <laughs> it was, but, but we, were, we ended up walking like twenty thousand steps a day. I tracked it on my watch. So it kind of canceled out, right?
0: How easy is it for you to turn it off to not be like uh, you know? I, I could drive a, a couple miles and train with Mike Perry.
1: Oh man, it it, 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 it was it was different, different kind of thing. It was it, this was specifically for my daughter. Like I I knew that. This trip had nothing to do with me. I only went on a couple of rides because she was too young. So this was 100% just for her and just to see her, her excitement and, and her reaction.
0: What was the thing that she liked the most? She was, what, two and a half, you said?
1: Yeah, she'll be three in February. So what she liked the most, she loved seeing uh, Minnie and Mickey. She didn't. She, she liked some of the rides. She didn't really care too much for them. But to see Mickey and Minnie and Anna and Elsa, she was going, she was going crazy for it, that's all.
0: You on that Disney Plus
1: now? Oh, of course.
0: Yeah, I subscribed. It came out at midnight. I was the, like, I woke up in the morning, whatever, seven a.m. with my family. I'm like, okay, we're, we're subscribing. Let's go. And now my kids are all I, in. They love it.
1: it, it it's freaking awesome, man. I have, I have, I'm a Verizon member, so I get a free year anyway. So my daughter's loving it. My wife is loving it. I'm loving it. I'm watching all the shows I used to watch when I was a kid.
0: Yeah, same with me. We, we're watching Ducktales. I'm trying to get my oldest kid to watch the X-Men cartoons. Those, those were the best. Yeah,
1: Gargoyles. Got to watch Gargoyles.
0: Oh, Gargoyles is on there, too. Okay, there we go. Yep. See, learn something new every day. That's good. Yeah, but Disney Plus is, uh, is getting heavy rotation right now in the, uh, the Bronstetter household. Hey, yes. So I, I always like talking to you because you are entrenched in all of the news that's going on in, uh, in M&A. So I want to start with Ben Askren. Uh, this Hi. week, Ben Askren retires. Um, what do you think is going to be the lasting memory of Ben Askren in terms of his UFC career?
1: Um, it's hard in the terms of his UFC career. No disrespect to him, the, the last memory will be the the Masvidal fight, just because that was a uh, from Masvidal a history making moment and it came at the expense of him. So I would say that that would probably be his last impression. But um, I think he's a great fighter. I think he's a dude. I mean, I think it was a little bit too late for him to come to the UFC. I feel like if he, was, if he came to the UFC a couple of years earlier, I think he would have had more success. I still think he's a competitive fighter and he could definitely be competitive still. But um, it sucks that he had to go all like that.
0: Yeah, I mentioned that earlier in the show that, you know, we tend to deal in absolutes. And I think a lot of people are going to say, oh, see Askren, you know, his legacy is he was never going to be able to hang with the the guys in the UFC. Well, we didn't get to see the Askren in his prime because Askren, when he beat Diego Lima or uh, Douglas Lima, rather, was in 2012. And in 2012, in the UFC, you wouldn't have been able to find that many people that could have stuffed the kind of takedowns in wrestling that he would have brought to the table.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. It would have been a completely different situation, I think, for him if had he got to UFC a little earlier. That doesn't mean he, I necessarily think he would have been champion. I think him and GSP would have been a fun fight. I do think GSP still would have won, but um, I think that he definitely would have been inside to that entitled contention for, for years.
0: Yeah, we need to get a time machine built because like a prime Askren and prime GSP like would have aligned. Like that would have been yeah. like they both would have been like with twenty eight to thirty one at the same time, and we could have seen something pretty magical.
1: I mean, if, if we had a dollar for every time we had those scenarios in MMA, remember the Anderson Silva versus GSP? And, and <laughs>
0: Jones, yeah.
1: Yep, exactly. So <laughs> That's
0: pretty, It's pretty crazy. Um, with, with Askren, I think that um, you, when people look back, I, I really hope that they don't just look at his MMA or his UFC career, rather. I think that if you look at the big picture, you know, a lot of people say, oh, he crushed cans. But he beat Douglas Lima. He beat Korishkov, He beat a lot of good names in the sport.
1: Yeah, I, he he got a legit resume. If you look at his, his record, even the guys some of the guys he one were were dangerous fighters. And um, when he when he was beating those guys in Bellator, yeah, Douglas Lima wasn't in his prime. It's not the same Douglas Lima today. But at the end of the day, it's still Douglas Lima. He still has that name on his record.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, you might have some company at the 145 division. Apparently, Floyd Mayweather is coming out of retirement. What are your what are your thoughts on that? When you saw that, what what, what was the first thing that came to mind?
1: I, I have no clue what's going on there. Uh, I'm kind of curious. To see what what the announcement is going to be. I'm, I'm assuming Dana and uh, and and him are going to do a duple boxing, maybe with cross promotion with Mayweather promotions. I, I, I I'm I'm kind of confused. I don't know what's going on there.
0: Yeah, I think you're probably in the right ballpark. Like I I don't think that Mayweather is going to do MMA. Think think about oh, the yeah, lower. Yeah. yeah, I mean think about 145 and 155. Can you name any 43 year old like let alone those that have no experience in in MMA competing in the UFC?
1: No, there's there's there's, there's no zero chance he's not he's he's a he's a, Insanely intelligent man, he's not going to do that to himself, put him in that situation. Why Why would he? He doesn't need to. What, what would be the point? It's not like going to – he can go do a regular boxing match and make a ton of money. Why would he come and do MMA and make a ton of money doing that when he could just be successful doing the boxing? But I, I do not see him do MMA whatsoever. I think he's going to do a cross-promotion with um, the UFC and do maybe a boxing or maybe even – I know he has an MMA fighter that he, um, he manages. I can't remember the guy's name. Somewhere from Europe. from Maybe he'll do MMA.
0: Uh, I think you're I lost there. you you're there. Sorry, I think I thought I lost you there for a second. I got. I got you. Did
1: you hear anything
0: I said? I I missed a lot of it. I I, I you got to the part where you were talking about the man, the athlete that he manages, but the, I missed uh, everything after that.
1: Oh yeah, so I, I think either either he's going to do just a like super boxing with uh, maybe the promotions. Uh, like a cross promotion, or he's gonna get into maybe diving into it himself and, and doing a little uh, man, managing uh, other fighters, more fighters in the UFC.
0: People still think I'm crazy because I say that Ronda Rousey would have beaten him in MMA. Like even even though we saw that Ronda's boxing wasn't what you know it was kind of hyped up to be. In MMA, like, I think she could take one of Mayweather's punches, grab him, judo, throw him, and, and tap him out. Still, Even still to this day, but people think I'm crazy when uh, I say that. Obviously, we're not ever, never going to see any sort of like cross-gender fights, especially cross-sports, cross-gender fights, which are completely outside the realm of possibility. But am I crazy to believe that that could still happen? Uh, like, that that's how that uh, would have played out?
1: I, I mean, let's say the fight goes down. It, it's coming down. Rhonda basically has to sprint and charge him if she tries to... Strike with them, obviously, for more than ten seconds, it's over. Oh, um, she would know not to do that. It, yeah, of course. So let's, let's let's. She has one chance to go ahead and grab him, and he has basically one chance to throw a nice check hook, which he's done before. So if I had to pick, I honestly would pick Mayweather by 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 uh, now. But but if if, if gets her hands on him, it's over.
0: Yeah, the the conversation has always been uncomfortable, so I almost don't want to go any further in yeah. analyzing that one.
1: Um. It's <laughs> hypothetical speaking, all right?
0: Yeah, exactly. So you were you were at home, I guess, when uh, Calvin Cater fought uh, Zabit Magomedsharipov. You have a vested interest in in that fight, uh, given that it's in your division. What did you? What was your takeaway from that?
1: Yeah, it was a good fight. First round was really competitive, really back and forth. Um, I think uh, Zabit did a little bit more in that first round, so he got the first round. Uh, he got the second round to get the takedown, and then the third round was all was all Cater. I, I really do wish it was a five round fight, honestly.
0: Well, it's weird. People say that, but then you always have to think about the pacing being completely different, right? Obviously, if it's going to be a five round fight, Zabit knows that he's has you know a staff infection or he's just got over a staff infection. He's probably going to take it uh, pretty slow as opposed yeah. to the way that he did, you know, basically emptied the tank in the first two rounds.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. That's, that's a great point too. But um, and it was, I mean, I don't even knock him for making it for not for not accepting the, the five rounds. I get why we do it, and I get why why Cater wanted the five rounds. I would want the five rounds. While I was gonna do too.
0: When you look at Zabit. Do you think that he's next in line after uh, Volkanovski uh, faces Holloway? Regardless of, I mean, obviously Volkanovski wins like a a tight decision. You're probably going to see a rematch right away. But do you believe that uh, Zabit's done enough to earn a title shot?
1: I mean, it depends on how the Zombie fight goes. I think if Zombie beats um, Ortega, they'll probably do Zombie versus Holloway, and then um, and and then if they do that, I think that they'll do Yair versus Zabit, which is the fight that was supposed to happen. It's a fight that everybody wants to see anyway. So. Let's say let's say let's say Ortega wins and Holloway wins. Then you got Yair and you got Zabit, and it's not it's not a clear cut. I don't know. It's it's hard to say.
0: I think a lot of people have soured on Zabit, but I don't think that it's necessarily uh, justified. I think that we didn't get to see the best Zabit that night, but the best Zabit can still hang with a Max Holloway.
1: I mean, yeah, but it's, it'll happen if. if um, if uh, Holloway wins this fight and a lose, I, I do think that they will happen.
0: Now, I know you were uh, in Disney. I don't know. You, you were there Monday. So, did you get a chance to watch uh, the main event on Saturday?
1: Uh, yeah, well, I'm throwing a blank right now. Ja- Jacare, uh, the,
0: and, uh, Jacare and Boalovic. Uh
1: I've I seen uh, bits and pieces. I had a bunch of, a bunch of friends over, so we we're hanging out. But, uh, yeah, I saw bits and pieces of it. So, I heard uh, it wasn't the, and from what I've seen, it wasn't the most um, exciting fight, but.
0: Yeah, I'm going to ask you this as as a UFC fighter. You know, I have Robin Black on the show, and we're going to discuss this further later on. But is it fair to call a fight boring? Like, obviously, you know what goes into a camp. You know what goes into a weight cut. Um, when yeah. when you hear fans, or, or observers, or media, or whatever, call a fight boring, do you think that that's fair? Oh, uh, that's
1: that's a good question. I, I, I personally, I, I feel like all my fights, and I pride myself in being an exciting fighter. So I I do think I may, maybe I I don't I don't know. I, 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 I do think it's fair. I think it's fair because you get guys that that are stalling fights, stalling the action, and I get it to a to a degree because you're making money. If you win the fight by stalling the action, you you just doubled your paycheck. So it doesn't really matter. It doesn't to you. But um, I, I so, so it's like yeah, it's fair. It's fair.
0: You know it's funny I came to a realization recently that it's a very weird thing to say about MMA but there's a risk in not taking risks. Like if you don't take risks in fights, if you don't get, you know, a flashy knockout or you don't look like you're you're being aggressive, you're not trying to get a fight of the night bonus, you could potentially be really lowering the the shelf life of your career because the UFC yep. uh, as a promotion are looking for more exciting fighters. That's true. I
1: think that's a great point. There there is a 100% a risk in not taking risks and, and being that that fighter that'll just stall or just be content with uh, winning the first two rounds and running away for the last third round, I mean, you got guys that, that are in the UFC that do that, so um, I don't think the UFC cares too much for that kind of style. I think it's pretty obvious the styles that they like, um, which, it it, it, it it just sucks because it's not we're not, you don't play fighting, you know what I mean? So, we're, we're putting our bodies and our, and our health on the line for everyone's entertainment and yeah, sometimes you get one of those crazy fights, and then sometimes you get some of the boring fights, but you can't, you, as, as a fighter, I can't go out there and have a fucking war every single time I go out to the cage. I, I can't do it. You know what I mean? I I, I physically can, but it's going to take control of on my body, and I got, I don't care about the fans as much as I care about my, my, my daughter and my wife. You know what I mean?
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, one person I had on the show uh, earlier this week is uh, Joe Giannetti, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Mike Trezano uh, defeated him to become the ultimate fighter, uh teammate of yours. Yeah. Um he was supposed to face uh, Patty Pimblett tomorrow night and, um, yeah. and missed weight by, I think, six or seven pounds. But he was walking me through what the past nine days were for him. And it, it, it just sounds like bedlam. It sounds like he didn't sleep. His dad wouldn't let him take work off. So he was, he was cleaning ventilation systems like in, in the wee hours of the night. He was training twice a day. He was eating two eggs uh, twice a day. He wasn't getting any sleep. Um, and then, of course, he's going to another continent. And, his, you know, he misses weight by quite a bit, but uh, his opponent wouldn't take the fight. Um, if you're if you're a fighter and your opponent pulls out, pulls out last, you know, at the last minute, whatever, a couple of days notice, a week notice, and you accept another fight, should you be accepting that fight with the knowledge that the person you're going to face, unless they're moving up a weight class, is in, in all likelihood not going to make weight? And you have to kind of factor that into your decision?
1: Yeah, 100%. You definitely have to. Yeah. You're... you're Taking a risk by accepting that fight, knowing that a guy might not make the weight. And if he does not make the weight, he kind of, I mean, you're making, I, I fought one time, my, my pro debut, a guy missed weight. And I only made it that, But it was like 500 to show, 500 to win. He missed weight. I, I ended up making an extra two. So I was like, I'm not mad. I was, I was sitting, there. I help get how I people, mean, I, I guess to an extent, I get how people get mad, but I just made an extra 200 bucks. It was my pro debut. I'm like, I'm sweet. I hope everybody missed. So, um, yeah, if he misses weight, for me personally, Go ahead, miss it. I'll I'll take your money.
0: And Gianetti offered him hundred percent of his show money. He said, I, I just want to yeah. fight you. And and yeah. uh and he I, turned it down.
1: I'm like, cool. Let's fight. <laughs> Let's
0: do it. <laughs> Why do you think people are so hesitant to take a fight with somebody who's missed weight by so much? Do you think do are people really do you think that's just a concern that's it's almost like a phantom concern in terms of the size or is it a real concern?
1: I don't know. That's it's a good question. I really I really don't know. Um I feel like not just him missing weight, but um him taking the fight on such short notice, that would give me so much more confidence. I had a full camp, so if I have that full camp, this guy has nine days notice. I'm going to be able to pre- push the pace. I'm going to have the cardio advantage. Um, he's coming in. He's 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 hurting. He couldn't make the weight. I mean, if he pushed himself to that to that limit where he couldn't do it anymore. I- I'm going in there full confidence, and I'm going to make extra money because he missed the weight. So why would I? I, I would accept.
0: Your last fight against Maquan Amir was a great fight. Uh, it looked like he had won the first round, and then you just didn't take your foot off the pedal for the you know the remainder of the fight. You had a late finish. Um, but it was the last fight on your UFC contract. Has there been any movement uh, in, in terms of uh, your future status with the uh, the promotion?
1: Yeah, we're definitely working on things. Definitely, definitely, the plan is definitely to stay with the UFC. So we're just working on things, getting the numbers uh, situated, and I'm um, looking forward to, to signing coming in.
0: I like that you're willing to say that, that, you know, you say you want to fight the best of the best, you want to stay with the UFC. Does that help in negotiations, or do you not really, are you not really privy to those discussions?
1: Yeah, I'm not really too much involved in it. I just say what I want, and then let the rest, together, let them do the rest.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I know that the UFC is looking, apparently, to come to Brooklyn in April. Are you hoping oh, to fight sooner than that?
1: I didn't know when the, when I heard February, I heard um, March, now I'm here in April, um, but yeah, I mean, I I do want to fight a little sooner, but April, not too far away. I'll be able to enjoy my daughter's birthday, and it's in Brooklyn. I I love fighting at home, man. My my family would would really appreciate that too. My friends as well. So uh, April sounds like a good day. I, I haven't fought I fought five times in um in New York, and I've yet to fight in a Brooklyn cards, uh, at a Brooklyn event. So that'd be awesome.
0: Yeah, Brooklyn's a great city. I like it there. I'm glad yeah. to go there every year. Yep. Um. I know that uh, Houston is also on the radar for February. Apparently, uh, a lot of a lot of fights are starting to trickle out in terms of what's going to happen. Dominic Reyes versus John Jones uh, is one of those fights. H- how do you break that one down? I mean, Dominic Reyes, we don't have a huge sample size because he gets finishes so quickly.
1: Yeah, it's hard. But um, then, then they, if the one fight he did have that got lost the decision was with um, Uzdemir, Yeah, uh, Uzdemir, and that was that was really close fight. I, I think I had Uzdemir winning that fight, but um, it was close. But uh, just based off of that, I got. How can I pick against John Jones though? You know what I mean? Like the dude is, he, he, he can't he can't pick against him. You just can't. Dude does, he doesn't stop winning and he doesn't really have any. The, the biggest hole I'd say would, would be in his boxing, and I think like he really cleaned that up lately. And he's been using his reach a lot better. So yeah, I gotta go with John Jones.
0: Well, one of the tough parts here is when you look at Jones's previous fights. They've been against these middleweights moving up. He doesn't seem like he cares that much. It's, it's like another paycheck for him. And as a result, it looks like he's fighting. Uh, he, you know, he's fighting kind of safely. He's, he knows he's going to win the fight, it seems like. He's fighting with a lot of confidence. But he doesn't seem like he's getting out of bed for it. This fight, that seems like he's starting to get up for it. This is an undefeated guy, a guy who really wants to fight him, That thinks he has a shot against him. And I feel like we're going to see uh, that, that version of John Jones uh, that we're used to seeing, the one that, that has that killer instinct.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean... He, I feel like his last uh, couple fights haven't been his best performances, and um, if he doesn't get a finish here, I feel like I feel like he's going to be fighting to get that finish, to get that respect that that, that um he hasn't really been getting because um, his fight with Tiago Santos and Anthony Smith, I feel like they were they were um I don't know what the word is like uh it didn't look like he was hungry to to really get in there and finish when he fought Shogun to win the belt. And he was doing all the title defenses against the like Rashad and uh, Rampage and Cheetah. Like he looked like a, a killer. He was finishing those fights, but he was—he looked like he was on a mission to finish those fights from the from the first battle to the last. And his last couple fights, like he's been content just to go decision and win, win round.
0: Yeah, it's not that John Jones were accustomed to seeing. Um, I know yeah. the the yeah. decades wrapping up soon in terms of uh, the UFC. What do you think is the biggest thing that happened in the UFC this decade? I know that's a very loaded question. But is there one singular thing in the last decade that you think has really defined the promotion?
1: One singular thing. I think the New York thing is huge. Just getting MMA legalized in New York, I think that's massive. Um, the, the sale, selling to WME IMG, was huge. Um, that pro- it's hard to pick one thing. It really is, but, but I guess I, I'd go with with WWE sale. That that. Not just uh, it, it made the sport mainstream.
0: Yeah, I was thinking of doing the same thing uh, next week. I think I'm going to do a top ten list of the top ten moments of the decade for the UFC. And off the top of my head, like I've been thinking through different things, signing Ronda might be it. Like signing Ronda opened up the entire roster to basically okay. a new demographic. Um, having her have you know the effect that she had when she first came in, when she's finishing everybody in the first round, uh, she was kind of this unbeatable star. And then once Holm beat her, it opened up a whole new... It basically opened up women's MMA because you saw that she could be beaten, that anybody could be beaten. And then, of course, when Cyborg came along and the Nunes fight happened, like it just opened up all kinds of different possibilities. Now, I, I don't know if that's necessarily the number one thing. I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, the Endeavor deal is huge. Signing with ESPN is really big. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. th- there's just a lot of different things that happened in the decade. But I try not to have recency bias. Like I try to go back and think about how it felt back when... You know, Ronda came in and and she had that first fight, and she almost lost the first fight against Carmouche. and you know, like th- those kind of things, they resonate with me a little bit. I, I try to put myself back in those, in my shoes back then. But it's going to be fun to do. I, I'm I'm interested to see what I might have forgotten about off the top of my head when I go and do research on this thing.
1: No, that's that that's a, that's actually a really good one. That might be that, that that's definitely top three. But I think another one that I forgot about was uh, just bringing over 135 and 145, emerging that from the WBC. Into the UFC too. I think that was huge. Yeah, was that, that in was the last ten
0: years? years? Yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to think about when was, that was. It must have been.
1: Yeah, it definitely was. Because I'm 28 now, When I was 18. The UFC and W C we were still separate.
0: Yeah, and but they had bought the WEC, but I guess they hadn't merged it yeah. in. Yeah, I'm trying to think exactly. of when it was. I'm trying to think of you know BJ Penn being the like lightweight champion, and that was the lightest division. <laughs> I'm trying to remember when that was, okay. but
1: yeah. I, I think 20 2010. I think
0: 2010.
1: If I had to guess, I remember 20. I graduated in 2009. And WC was still separate from the UFC. They were, they were, they were sister companies, but I think, I think for the year after I graduated is when uh, – because at that time, I'm like, I want to be in the WC. So obviously, like, I, I couldn't make 155 back then. So I'm like, oh, yeah, that's my dream, being in the WC. And then UFC bore them out. I'm like, sweet. i to be in the WC against the UFC.
0: Yeah, the, if it's 2020, I don't know if I'm going to count it because it's not technically part of the decade. Like, I think the decade starts at 2011. But, we'll look, I'll go back and look. I don't know. i got to figure that uh, out. Yeah, that must have been – the WEC was awesome. I, I used to love – like, I think I enjoyed WEC cards more than UFC cards when they were on. It was just, like, every event seemed to have at least one crazy moment.
1: Yeah, 100%. WEC is fucking amazing. So is Strikeforce. So is Pride, I guess. I do I do miss that that, that competitiveness with uh, with other rival organizations. So that's, that sucks. We don't have that much. We don't have... I feel like we still do have that with, that with PFL and Bellator, but um, the level was... It was almost even UFC and, uh, and Pride back then. Even Strikeforce had some great, great fights and fighters.
0: Bellator signed a lot of really good prospects over the last four years. I think they're really playing the long game. I think they have a lot of really solid talent that down the road we're going to see are going to become big names. Now, whether they can do that, like whether they have the promotional clout to do that, I don't know. But that's, that's the feeling I get is that when, when Coker came in and started signing like Ed Ruth and Aaron Pico and a lot of these developmental prospects, he was kind of playing the long game. And I'm interested to see how this conversation changes within the next, like in 10 years from now, what are we going to be talking about?
1: That's true. Uh, I guess we'll just have the way to
0: say. Yeah. All right, Shane. Well, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Um, hopefully things get resolved with you in the UFC soon in terms of uh, a new contract, uh, because uh, yeah, sure. your fights have been awesome, and
1: uh, we thank look forward to seeing more of them. Thank you, man. I appreciate the
0: time. That was Hurricane Shane Burgos on the TSN MMA show. And uh, as I spoke to him about, we wanted to touch on an interesting subject. You know, I was watching Jan Bojavich versus Jacare. And I saw a lot of people on social media, and myself included to a degree, say that it was kind of a boring fight. Now, I asked Shane about this. Can you call a fight boring? Like, is it acceptable to call a mixed martial arts fight, knowing what these guys go through, cutting weight, the training camps, everything that goes into a fight, is it fair to call a fight boring? And I wanted to talk to somebody who kind of understands nuance, who likes to have a bit of stream of thought conversation, and uh, the perfect person for that is my colleague at TSN, Robin Black, who uh, is kind of a philosopher in the mixed martial arts space. And he's going to join us right now on the TSN MMA show. I'm now joined by my colleague at TSN, proud to call him a colleague, and a friend, Robin Black, uh, joining us now on the TSN MMA show. This past weekend, Jan Bojovic versus Jacare go through five slogging rounds of MMA, with uh, Jacare trying desperately to get Bojovic to the ground, trying to set up as, as many uh, different ways to, I guess, inflict jiu-jitsu pain upon uh, Jan Bojovic. Bojovic losing the first two rounds as a result of that control, but then in the last three, two of the three judges find that Bojovic's aggression, uh, even though it was just for spurts of those rounds, was enough to win him the fight. Uh, but outside of the fight itself, what I really want to talk to Robin about is The idea that a fight is boring. Now, we've heard this time and time again, With whether it's Francis Ngannou versus Derek Lewis, whether it's uh, a fight that I actually watched with with Robin, as well as uh, John Ramdean, uh, the fight between Tyron Woodley and Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, the sequel that did not live up to the original. Um, So... Robin is on the line here, and I, I just want to get your two cents on this, because I, I think that it's always important, as somebody who covers the sport, um, and, and even those who just observe the sport uh, from an outsider's perspective, if they've never been in there, what it means to call a fight boring, and why that may or may not be fair. <laughs> yes,
2: I'm with you, brother. So, my thank you for having me, and I'm proud to call you a colleague, too. Um, but not friend? Come on. Yes. Oh, even prouder to call you a friend, let's be <laughs> honest. But... but so it's an interesting one because when you mentioned this to me, my first thought was you cannot call a fight boring. And then my second thought was, actually, you can do whatever you want. We live in a free society. By all means, if you want to call something boring, you have that individual right. But when I was a kid and I used to say, I'm bored, my mom used to say to me, only boring people get bored. Oh, wow, that's and,
0: interesting. Yeah.
2: And, and I thought about that as we were chatting about this today. Listen, none of us are qualified to say what is or isn't boring. And what I mean by that is boring by itself is not a thing that exists in nature. You can't walk off into the forest and bring me back a bucket of boring. You can't. All it is is a perspective through your eyes, using the information that you've gathered, the knowledge that you have, the experience that you have, your biases and desires. Boring is a reflection of all of that internally. So if you find something boring, you are correct. It's boring to you. Now, if you're asking me if universally we can say, you know, Woodley versus Thompson or, you know, Ngannou versus Lewis is boring, my answer is no, we cannot. Your, your eyes, your experience, your knowledge, what you like, your feelings allow you to say, this fight is boring, dot, 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 to me. Is it boring? There is no boring. Boring is simply in the eyes of the beholder. Now, I, I
0: ask this particularly because I think that as somebody who has fought like yourself, people don't really understand what goes into all of this, the training camp and all, you know, and all of that. Do you think it's disrespectful to fighters to call a particular fight boring? I know that there are fighters that will go on Twitter and say, wow, this is really boring, or you know, especially ones that are, that are proud of being action fighters, but I'd like to hear your two cents on that.
2: Well, you're the fans. If you're the fans and you paid your money, you can do whatever you want. And if, I'm a, if the fighter is offended by that, that's really up to him. Um, but if we're, for me, it's when we are journalists or we are analysts or we are reporters or we are hosts and we say something is boring, we're stating it as a universal fact. And I think that is disrespectful to the audience. The truth is something is what it is. Your knowledge about it will allow you to feel entertained by it or excited by it or learn something from it or find it deeply curious. I found uh, Ganu versus, um, versus Lewis fascinating. Again, boring to, to choose to somehow say that's a reflection of the amount of physical contact made is just an arbitrary thing made by somebody who wants to believe that. It was not boring because, to me because what was happening was there was a psychological battle between both men who, if you ask them, 20 minutes before the fight, which you shouldn't, but if you did, what would be the worst outcome you could possibly imagine? What would you do anything to avoid? They would say, I would do anything to not leave that fight saying, I wish I could have done more. That's what they would say. And you ask them 20 minutes after, you say, how did you feel? They're like, I don't know why, but I couldn't do more. We sit back and we judge not understanding what's actually happening, how challenging it is under the spotlight effects of human eyes, under the judgment of other people, under your own fears and insecurities, the damage, the anxiety, all of that, we judge and we say, why aren't those guys doing anything? Even more so, often what you hear is somebody will say, I don't know why those guys aren't doing anything. And that one's a little more honest. Of course you don't know why they're not doing anything. You don't know anything about performance under pressure. You don't have any experience in it. And if, if a fan says, and, or an audience member, or even a journalist or an analyst says, I don't know why they're not doing anything, at least that's an honest expression. You can say it out of frustration if you like, but that's up to you. But the reason you don't know what's happening is because, well, you don't know what's happening. There is a psychological dynamic that is happening to the body language, the intent, the fears, the anxiety, What they're seeing, the hesitation as a result of all of the knowledge that they have All of these things are happening Nobody's sitting out there saying, I want to make Steve, the viewer, angry I want to go, I want Steve to be upset I want Steve to think this is boring And I'm doing this to Steve, the viewer No, those fighters would do anything to be capable of performing in the moment They just can't And if you ask me, that is fucking fascinating
0: all right. Well, that makes that makes a lot of sense. The interesting thing to me is that, the I guess the the intersection of sports and entertainment. Now, I think that if there's a if there's a basketball game, let's say that's a, it's a blowout, and fans say, "Well, this is getting boring." There still is a sport that's taking place, but I I feel like MMA is starting to become more spectacle sometimes than it is sport. And I think that people are watching MMA to watch highlights, to see something spectacular happen. And if it doesn't happen, that people aren't really enjoying it as sport. They're enjoying it more as spectacle. Do you, do you think that that's fair to say? Or do you think that, that, is, um, is, is all, that it's all kind of built into one thing?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that is fair to say. But I think you get what you create. So, you know, the the largest organizations in the world, the UFC, which we... Proudly and excitedly cover Bellator, the one championship, Glory, and in, in kickboxing, all of the, uh, uh, the highest level boxing. These companies and these organizations build around hype. They build around excitement. They build around gore, violence, meaning. Winner gets a title shot, and all and they're going to be rich and famous. Like we build it around outcome consequences and the moments of action. We built that. We told the audience that's what they should expect. We we taught them that they, the somebody who does the jumping spinning hook kick is brilliant and somebody who finesses something using their mind and, and all those things and, uh, is boring. We taught them that, that. We didn't teach them why there is a fascinating dynamic in every contest. What we've done inadvertently is undermined the true, like fascinating, in, uh, incredible, compelling, inspiring nature of every single pro- professional sporting uh, combat sports contest. It is in and of itself, because two human beings have dedicated their lives to this moment in and of itself it's precious and it's compelling, but we've made a mistake of using the low hanging fruit and saying, it's only awesome. If somebody gets knocked out, it's only awesome. If two guys punch each other 7,000 times in four minutes, we've done this. So we taught we're all just humans are just sitting around waiting to be taught things. And, and I don't like to admit that that's true of myself and you and everybody else we know, but that is how we live. and, so when you when we go out, we the machine, we the analysts, we the journalists, we the UFC, we any of these things, we we get what we tell people to give us, and so we've told them that, we've taught them that this is what they want, and the truth is, if we'd have spent time showing them something else, they would find that interesting. We're all just a function of that. But if you're asking me, you know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's just what it is. You know, uh, I've I've slowly over time stopped having an opinion on what's good or bad and just accepting what is and trying to figure out how to work within it, and see the truth in it. And this is the truth as I see it.
0: One of the craziest things that I've realized about MMA, particularly the UFC, because it's uh, like, you know, it's a big promotion is that there's a lot of risk in not taking risks. If that makes yeah. sense, if that makes sense, 100%. just, just from, from the value of, of as an asset to the promotion and to the 100%. fans,
2: a hundred percent. And so in fact, what you're saying is true. Now, you and I are not the first people to see this. Young fighter number 27 also knows this. So if you talk to him eight weeks out from the fight, he will tell you, I'm going to throw spinning kicks. I'm going to throw flying knees. I'm going to let it all hang out. I'm going to have a crate because he knows that's the way to be successful. So why doesn't he do it in the fight? Because it's really, really, really psychologically hard. The audience, we do not know that. The people who have fought a second time and a third time and a fourth time and a fifth time and then fought at a high level, they do know that. When you sit around with a bunch of pro fighters, especially retired fighters, they'll talk about how hard it was to be free. And I'm telling you that that Jacare and Jan Blavovic, when they were talking six weeks out from that fight, they wanted to fight exciting because they all know that's the way. If you're only going to have... 15 UFC fights or 12 or nine in your lifetime, you want to be able to let yourself go so that they're flashy. They're all the things that the audience has been taught to want so that you get the most reward from it. You get paid the most, you get the most audience, you get more Twitter and Instagram followers, you get more sponsors, you get more buzz. And that's how you do it. So it's not like they're saying, I think the best strategy would be to make Steve the the viewer angry and I'm going to do it. And that's going to spite him. And then when I'm Steve and I'm watching it, and I'm like, this sucks. Why are these guys being so boring? They're not. They are trying. And that's that's another misnomer. People are like, why isn't this guy trying to finish the fight? I'm telling you, this sounds crazy. But in every single moment of every fight, a fighter is hoping they are one choice away from finishing the fight. No fighter is ever sitting there going well, I think I'll make this one boring. They want to finish it, but it's hard to do. That's a professional athlete standing in front of you who wants to you know, uh, who wants to remove you from your consciousness or separate you from your consciousness in front of everyone you love and the world watching. That makes it really hard to be free. But the freer you are, as you said, the more reward you get. It is, <laughs> it is risky to not take risks, and yet you can't just will yourself to do it no matter how hard you want to.
0: But well, one fighter that started in the UFC this year is Demolador, who you did a piece on, uh, Michelle Pereira. Yeah. And Michelle Pereira said to me after his debut in uh, Rochester back in May that um, he understands that taking risks and providing entertainment value is a big asset, and that's what he wants to do. He wants to entertain. He's not, he's not necessarily there to win or lose. He's not there to become a champion. He just wants to entertain. He's looking at it from a strictly entertainment standpoint. But there's a, a massive amount in risks in that as well, because you're taking all these risks in order to provide entertainment, the pressure's on you to entertain, and if you're more focused on that, you're creating risk in terms of winning or losing. So if you, if yeah. you, if you are not focused on winning or losing, you're focused strictly on entertaining the fans, You know that's also a, a pretty
2: quick way to find yourself on the outs. Well, if there was a, a correct answer to this, it would only be a correct answer for a month. Because if there was something that was a choice of how to perform that would allow you to win, everyone would do it, and then it wouldn't work anymore. So there is never a correct strategy. There's never It's a moving target. Having the right way to fight is a moving target, because the more people fight that way, the less it works, because the more their training partners do it and the more they understand it. So Joe Lozon told me years ago, and I love Joe Lozon. He's, He's brilliant and also fascinating and also beautifully weird. And he said when he would go out and fight what people would call recklessly, he said, mathematically speaking, he believed that although that fight may be over in six minutes, he would actually, in the long run, take less damage than <laughs> like if he fought huh. and, <laughs> and, and win bonuses. So he won seven or eight or ten bonuses. So in the long run, he would make hundred thousand dollars for a fight where you'd normally make thirty. Um, uh, let's say you were making thirty and thirty. You win. That's sixty. And if you lose excited, that's 80. Mathematically speaking, he felt fighting excited was actually better for him. And on the nights where you won and got a bonus, you got the equivalent of three losing fights where he didn't get hurt. In the long run, he thought that would hurt less. Like he had a very algorithmic approach to how and why fighting the way he did worked. But also whenever someone does, uh, and whatever becomes the norm, whatever everybody's doing, eventually the way to beat that is somehow find the opposite, somehow find what they're not doing. So if people start to be quote hesitant or safe or, or defensively prioritize defensiveness, you become incredibly offensive. So this is a natural reaction. Like over time, people became more about striking, more about fighting at distance, less about grappling because they made more money. So it caused them to fight more aggressively, which also made them more money. But then the George St. Pierre's of the world came out and said, if everybody's just going crazy or everybody's getting hyper-aggressive, why don't I fight analytically? And he started to win. So this is a back and forth. It's an inevitability. If you find beauty in martial artistry, in strategy, in tactics, in subtlety, in the psychic battle that is a fight, that is a a contest between two highly trained nervous systems, you'll never be bored. But... If you are interested in lots and lots of punches and kicks and blood and gore and elbows and people, you know, throwing, you know, commentators yelling about how these guys are throwing caution to the wind and letting it all hang out. And and you like that. That's what you find exciting. Well, then you're only going to find some things exciting and they won't all be within your control. You might get angry at that, but that's up to you. It's your life. You can watch it how you want. You're a fan. You paid your money. You buy, you pay per view, or you went to your show, and and you get the right to view it the way you want. It, far be it from Aaron Bronsted or Robert Black to tell you how to how to watch fights or whether or not you can think something is boring. It's up to you, you know. But if you look deeper, you'll be less bored. Like like my mom said, only boring people get bored. I
0: got into it with some people online uh, over the course of the weekend. One of my favorite fighters to watch of all time is Charles Oliveira, and I'm probably not in the minority there. But um, yep. I was saying that. Even though he's nowhere close to a title shot right now, stylistically, him versus Khabib is a fight that I would love to see, that I think would yeah. be incredibly interesting. And people were responding and saying, uh, well, look at Davi, Davi Hamos versus uh, Islam Makashev. Davi Hamos is, is a far more decorated jiu-jitsu player than Charles Oliveira. And I was saying, well, yes, he is. I, I, you know, There's no way for me to refute that, but when you look at how Olivera fights versus how, hamos fights in an MMA stand, you know, from an MMA vantage point and you look at risk aversion, I think a lot of the guys that were very, very high level jujitsu players are very averse to risk in MMA, but well, Oliveira, it, sorry, sorry, go ahead.
2: Well, it's also the scenario, right? So, the more pressure somebody puts on you, the less risk you feel you can take. So Khabib pressures you so much, which, which is, I agree with you. I'd love to see Olivera fight him. It's also, the, what you're saying is the exact same reason people want to see Tony fight him. Yeah, they 100%. Tony will take risks. At most people, what happens when, I'm like, Khabib once grabbed a single leg on me, joking around and was being playful and, and said that he likes my work and don't believe what the Instagram says about him hating my breakdown. It was very charming, very, very fun. But when he grabbed my leg gently as a guy trying to be as safe and gentle as possible, it was still terrifying as you felt his frame wrap their arms around you. So I cannot, I've cannot. i been told by people who, who grapple him in the gym that you cannot comprehend what it's like after you, you fight with him. Uh, uh, for example, Dustin. Dustin was sad and disappointed in blaming himself because it's very difficult to grasp. You think you performed badly, but you didn't. What happened was that man is better than you could have possibly imagined, including everyone you've trained with. When that happens, you don't get to be open. However, we've never seen people try to be take a lot of risks with him. And, hey, man, even the great Khabib or John Jones may lose one day, never mind Jones' DQ – uh, they may lose one day, no matter how great they are. If they do, one possible way is a flashy submission that was a, took a massive risk and got and caught it. So I agree with you completely. But there's also an issue of that conversation when we're talking not about Oliveira and Khabib, or not about you know you know how different um, you know different uh, style, different ways that people put together choices work. We're talking about conversations now, and so people disagreed with you they thought that was crazy and they used some other comparison and said it's because this guy's more decorated decorations don't win fights decorations don't win anything belts don't win anything world championships in jiu jitsu don't win anything these are just things you did in your life before so people will say oh well damian Maya is a better grappler than this guy because he won world championships are meaningless and and we also have an issue where we just compare stuff this is just how we've done it this is how you know the the narrative around fighting has taken place two people two fighters will sit at a desk and one will say well this guy's got better grappling but this guy's got better wrestling and we started to think that's an actual thing um, scores and ratings and and classifications of general choices of how you fight don't fight each other humans fight each other Charles Oliveira of course could catch any fighter in the world in a triangle or a knee bar it's moments not only do humans fight each other moments of humans expressing themselves are put into conflict and contrast. It's not about you, the flaw of that conversation is that we think it is just that guy's a better jujitsu guy. So therefore he does better. It's not how it is. We've, we misunderstand what we're seeing and that's nobody's fault. It's just how we've been exposed to it and how the narrative has come around fighting. And, and the, the overtime What we're supposed to do about anything that we love or study or consume greatly, if you're a movie fan or you're a music fan or you're an art fan or you're a fighting fan, what you're hoping is in that three years, you will look back at what you knew once and realize how rudimentary it was. And this will happen for the rest of your life, whether you study jazz or the making of shoes or fighting. And that issue is how you can look at something and go, one day we'll look back and go, of course. You know, jiu-jitsu belts don't fight each other. Uh, you know, arbitrary rankings of the opinion of somebody's skill in an art form that's a barely a part of fighting anymore don't fight each other. Human beings fight each other. So that's that's the flaw in that, in that conversation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's weird because nobody would say about, you know, Tony Ferguson, oh, well, he's not as decorated as Davi Ha motion jiu-jitsu. How's he going to sub? It's because yep. he's Brazilian, I think. I think that's why people are, like, saying that about Oliveira. Because Oliveira... It's not. It has nothing to do with credentials. It has to do with how you fight, and th- yeah. that's that's why I, I brought that. I, Michael Kiesa of all people actually agreed with me. Retweeted and said, "Yeah, that, that would be an amazing yeah. fight. <laughs> whether it's whether yeah. it's Ferguson or uh, Khabib, it would be amazing to see Oliveira fight the winner of that fight." And I think he's just saying that from the perspective of somebody who just loves watching this.
2: Well, yeah, and, and Kiesa, uh, if he would drop to 155 pounds again, he'd love to fight Khabib. They all would love to fight Khabib, and they all they all imagine what is the one thing nobody has done is commit to attempting to sub them. And, you know, these guys don't grow up. They don't become the best or the top 10 or nine or 20 or 16 or number eight in the world by thinking, oh, well, I'm really good, but Khabib would beat me or John Jones would beat me or GSP would beat me. They want to fight these people. And by when, when a Michael Chiesa or anybody else looks at it, they see a beatable fighter. So of course they agree. They're educated and knowledgeable and they know that, Anybody on any given day with the right approach can beat anybody else. These aren't robots. They're not characters in a video game. This isn't Dungeons and Dragons with comparing attributes. These are humans. Khabib is the best fighter in the world today. But if Khabib suddenly had some type of injury or some type of change in the way he viewed the world or uh, suddenly had uh, an issue in the family, like anything can change and shift someone. They are not fixed people. They are ever-changing human beings like all of us are when people and, and i digress but when people say conor mcgregor has the crazy knockout power the touch of death in his left hand the celtic cross whatever we all want to say that's not true the conor mcgregor we watched in those moments did but conor mcgregor who is living a different life preparing in different ways sees the world differently may or may not Right. And that goes for Khabib and that goes for Charles Oliveira and that goes for Kiesa and that goes for you and me. This is this is the world we live in. So, and again, when we do discuss how or why somebody may disagree with a certain thing, for the most part, the answer to that is they don't have most people haven't given a great deal of thought to almost anything. What they do over time is consume somebody else's opinion and then believe it. so. That's why two sides of any political argument Believe they are correct because they've never really gathered all the knowledge and studied something in detail from a physical and a mental and a psychological and a historical standpoint. All they did was watch television and then repeat what they heard. So often, of course, people are going to be incorrect about these things and not understand what they're saying because they're fans and they they do it. They imitate commentators and they imitate newscasters and they imitate sports characters. That's just what humans do. Well,
0: it's funny because. This brings our conversation full circle. If you were to say Francis Ngandu is a boring fighter or Stephen Thompson is a boring fighter, I think that's exactly why you have to treat these as kind of fluid individuals and in fluid situations because if you did think that Francis Ngandu was in a boring fight with Derek Lewis or that Stephen Thompson was in a boring fight with Tyron Woodley, you couldn't be further off by saying that either of those individuals are boring fighters, right? I mean, they've pr- provided countless entertainment for, for those who watch the sport.
2: Exactly. And when you're with your kids, somebody would say, Aaron is a loving, generous, kind, uh, patient person. When you are running to the airport and somebody cuts you off in traffic and you yell at them, somebody will say, Aaron is an angry, vindictive, you know, uh, like hu- they're humans. Fighting is just an ex- a momentary expression of everything you are when you're frightened, you fight a different way. When you're angry, you fight a different way. When you're tired, you fight a different way. As you age, you fight a different way. You fight different in round one than round three. We're human beings. Nobody is a great guy or a bad guy. Nobody is, you know, a hundred percent of the time patient or a hundred percent of the time impatient. We're ever changing. These are just, these aren't attributes. And that is the flaw of how we talk about Sport and art and it's because we have short periods of time podcasting has changed this have being able to come on a podcast and have a nuanced long meandering conversation has changed this but you know we've normally had to talk in sound bites because of the nature of, of entertainment we've had to talk in sound bites so we've people have started to believe this guy is a dynamic striker with unbelievable knockout power in both hands well, no, he's just a martial artist who, on three occasions, knocked people out. But in the gym, he's a genius when he's sitting on someone's back. Or this guy is a ferocious killer, and it's like actually he's a a cerebral guy who just you know like we're all we're many things, and so it's a flaw in our in our systems of looking at things and talking about things that causes these weaknesses in our understanding. And we talk about fighting; that's what we get to do for a living, but if we extrapolate this further this is why people argue about the weather and this is why people argue about science and this is why people are arguing about fake news or politics is because we've grown we've all matured or grown up or or aged up or whatever in a world where we think everything is some stable thing everything is always changing including Stephen Thompson and Francis Ngannou and the way people fight and the UFC, and fights themselves, and the weather, and everything, (laughs) like that's just, that's the reality, so if, and if you view the world that way, and and some people do, it can be very frustrating, because you're seeing an ever-changing organism that is fighting, and the rest of the world is hearing something that Rogan said that was brilliant two years ago, and still thinking that that's true today, and it wasn't, and if you ask Joe, he'd be like, oh, actually, that guy's changed many times, but when you heard, you know, somebody of very high intellect and somebody of high respect say something and you haven't heard anything about it since, you think that's still the truth. But it isn't. Things change.
0: Well, Robin, I'm glad we had this conversation because, um, you know, as you as you just said, you you got to be able to dissect these things a little bit. And uh, this is a great platform to do that. So I appreciate you joining me today.
2: My absolute pleasure, man. I hope we get to hang out sooner than later. It's fun uh, chatting with you always. And I haven't seen you for you know, a couple of cold beverages in a while. So I hope we get to do that soon.
0: Absolutely. Bring a couple of bottles of water next time you're at TSN. We can enjoy those together.
2: All right. Sounds good.
0: That was Robin Black on the TSN MMA show. Uh, Joe, hopefully back next week. He's doing two glory events this week. My oh my. Both in Chicago. I feel for that man. Doing two events straight. That's a lot of work. You know, a lot of people think, oh, you just sit there and you, see, you say what you're seeing. Yeah, it's not that easy. I'd love to see you sitting in the chair if you think that that's uh, that's the case when it comes to calling these events. So hopefully Joe's back next week. I'd like to thank Hurricane Shane Burgos. I'd like to sh- thank... I almost said shank. Ooh, Watch your back, Robin. I'd like to thank Robin Black, my uh, colleague and friend. And I'd also like to thank Joe Giannetti, who joined uh, me earlier in the week. If you didn't get a chance to hear the interview with Joe Giannetti... He missed weight against Patty Pimblett. And uh, a lot of people were kind of coming after him for being unprofessional on uh, Twitter without really knowing what it it takes to take a short-notice fight in an entirely different continent. So I wanted to shed some light on that. And I did. And so did he. Because it's his story, not mine. But uh, I thought it would be a good look behind the curtain about what goes into a fight week, especially on short notice. So thanks to... uh, Gellator, Joe Giannetti. And thanks to you, the listener. Please uh, do give us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Feel free to send me your feedback on Twitter, at Aaron Bronstetter, and uh, we'll be back next week. Thank you for joining
2: me. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA Show. For all
1: the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash